Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nalu Simmons. Dr. Nalu is a pediatric doctor with a love for educating parents and patients about common health concerns for children. She gives advice about children's health and spreading positive health messages. Dr. Nalu uses this platform to create awareness and education around health topics, being a credible, relatable, and accessible source of guidance to the public. In this podcast episode, Dr. Nalu shares her journey into pediatric dermatology, and we cover the most common skin conditions seen in children and their management strategy. We debunk some common myths associated with skin conditions in children, and she provides clear, easy-to-follow guidelines on looking after children's skin. I started by asking Dr. Nalu what she thought was the biggest misconception about skin conditions in children. From my experience in dermatology clinics and emergency departments, I would say the biggest misconception is that food allergy causes eczema. There's a lot of hype and fear about food allergy in the community. And I think there's a very quick jump to link eczema and food allergy. So um, I don't know if you want me to go into that a bit, but I think that's probably the biggest fear that parents have with skin conditions, the, the more common skin conditions in the community. That's really interesting. Yes, I'd absolutely like to dive into that a little bit deeper. But first of all, tell us a bit more about your career. Yeah, sure. Look, I've been doing pediatrics for about 10 years. So I went straight through from med school, straight through from high school into med school. At that stage, I thought I wanted to do either pediatrics or obstetrics. I wasn't too sure. And I did well in both of them at med school. So I got a job after intern that involved both obstetrics and pediatrics, but very quickly realized that pediatrics is what I wanted to do. And I haven't looked back since. So the last nine to 10 years, I've been doing just pediatrics. Working in the public hospital system, which means a lot of rotating around to lots of different hospitals um, and doing all sorts of ward jobs, neonatal intensive care, lots of clinics, lots of emergency department jobs. So very general, and I'm specialising in general paediatrics, which is a little bit of everything, and I love it. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So tell us about some of the most common skin conditions that we see in children. Yeah, look, this is just anecdotal from my own experience, but I'd Mm -hmm. say some of the more common things are rashes. So not necessarily conditions per se, but we do see a lot of skin rashes. They come through the clinics and emergency departments all the time. Usually things like viral rashes, so when a child has a fever or a virus, very common to get rashes with that. And then common childhood skin rashes like impetigo, which is school sores, super common, spreads very quickly among children. Things like molluscum, which is a little pimply viral rash that you see a lot in children, scabies, very common childhood rashes. I'd have to say eczema is the most common skin condition that we see in terms of chronic skin conditions. One in five infants get eczema and 
a lot of triggers in the community for that. And I guess the other skin conditions that we would see are infections. So things like bacterial infections of the skin or even things like viral herpes infections of the skin as well. Mm. So yeah, so rashes, eczema and infections, I'd say in my experience are the most common skin things that we see in children. Mm. And for children, some of these conditions, acute conditions, and sometimes chronic, we see them more in children. Why is that? Is that because they're so much closer in proximity or are they just more uh, susceptible to these types of conditions? It's probably a combination. I think what you're saying about proximity is definitely a big reason, particularly with the infective causes. So things like the molluscum and scabies, you often don't see that in adults because they're not touching each other as much and slobbering all over each other as much. So definitely the infective causes we would see more because of just the nature of children being all over each other, all over everything really, and things spread so quickly. And then other things that to do with just general immunity and things like eczema, asthma, allergies tend to rear themselves early on in child's life. So that's probably another reason as well. And I guess the other thing is things like genetic skin conditions as well. So things like what we call vitiligo, where you have you know, very light patches of skin, things like that that are quite genetic and inherited. You'd often pick them up more in childhood than you would later on in adulthood. Yes. So parents can become extremely concerned about their children's health and skin, especially when it might not be functioning as they expect it to. When is it necessary to seek further investigation? You mentioned at the beginning that a misconception is that the skin conditions and food tolerances are intrinsically linked. But when should a parent kind of be concerned and be looking for further investigation or a second opinion? Yeah, I guess the first thing I would say is that no one knows the child more than the parent. So if a parent is concerned, they should always seek extra advice. And anything that I recommend, a parental concern trumps everything. In general, I would say if conditions aren't responding to standard sort of treatments, so things that GP can suggest, then that's probably worth starting seeing someone else as well. So most of these things should respond to the general treatments. And for me, the big thing is if there are other features that go along with it. So for example, eczema in a small baby who's not putting on weight, for example, that can be a red flag for an immune condition. So, or you know, an unusual rash that the child also has some joint pain or joint swelling. So if there's other features that go along with the rash, that's a trigger for me to seek further advice and possibly further investigations. Mm. So a rash in itself with a child who's otherwise gaining weight and very well, you can generally watch and wait and see and manage conservatively. But as soon as there's other features that go along with it, that's the step that I would suggest parents seek some further advice. Yeah. And what are some of those clinical signs, for example, with a rash that may lead it to potentially have some kind of infection associated with it? What are those clinical symptoms or signs that parents can look for? Yeah, so if we're talking about infections specifically, things like fever, the child being generally unwell, off their food, not drinking as much, sort of general features of infection. Like I said before, a lot of viruses can give you a rash as well. So we see a lot of children coming through emergency with a rash and we know that it's a viral rash. But saying that if there's any concern about fever or being unwell, I'd always think about infection with the rash. The other thing is if the actual rash itself is hot, swollen, tender to touch, or if there's any pus or ooze or crusting, that's often a sign of infection as well. Yep. So you can get infection where, say, I've got a cold, 
and then I have a rash with the cold or the actual skin can be infected, like what we call cellulitis. So there's a, you know, a child's had a small spider bite and a couple of days later, the area becomes hot, red, swollen. So that's a local infection in the skin. Um, I guess the other thing you can think about with infections is if the rash changes. So sometimes eczema, for example, you can get herpes or viral herpes rash on top of that. And so they get blisters as well where the eczema is. If there's yellow crusting ooze, that can be signs of a bacterial infection on top of the eczema. So if the rash changes, that can be another sign of infection as well. Mm -hmm. And talk to us a little bit more about skin conditions and food intolerances or that misconception you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, so there's a lot of, because I've done dermatology clinics and I've done some allergy clinics as well. And mm -hmm. we see a lot of children come through allergy clinics with concern about food allergy and eczema. So the misconception is that food allergy causes eczema, but really what happens is the food allergy itself does not cause eczema. It can worsen eczema. So a child who has eczema can be triggered by a food that they eat. So the most common ones are wheat, milk, eggs, and peanut. But the food in itself is not going to cause a child to have eczema if they weren't going to get it anyway, if that makes sense. So it's basically the bottom line is that we wouldn't suggest avoiding a food purely because we're worried about it causing eczema. So the way that eczema and food allergy are related is that it gives a bit of a delayed reaction. So it's not your typical hives anaphylaxis type of reaction that's called what we call ige mediated it's a different type of reaction altogether and that's what the allergy tests will show up so eczema and food allergy is a different type of delayed reaction so the testing doesn't really help and unfortunately a lot of parents come and see allergists to get the testing because of eczema but really it's not going, to, not going to help. So if a child is otherwise able to tolerate that food, so if they're not getting hives, if they're not getting any breathing difficulties, vomiting, dizziness, then if the eczema is well-managed, they should be able to eat that food. We're really trying to avoid families cutting out food because of eczema. Mm, because yeah. then there's potential for deficiencies and then all the other implications that goes with Absolutely, that. Yeah, deficiencies, it really disrupts families to avoid foods, particularly things like egg and wheat and milk, which are so common in our diets. And really, if you can manage the eczema well, the child should be able to eat that food. And there is some evidence to show that a child with well-managed eczema is at less risk of developing food allergy later on as well. Mm, interesting. It's really important to manage the eczema well and to not be put off by the food being it worse. Yes. So how are skin conditions different in the management strategies compared to the treatments for adults? And maybe we could use eczema as an example. Yeah, look, I think, to be honest, a lot of the management is similar in terms of the medications we use and the treatments that we use. The big things that are different for children and adults is, one, the actual conditions themselves. So things like cool sores and molluscum and scabies, adults don't tend to get them. So we see different ranges of skin conditions in children. The dosing, obviously, is different. We're a bit, bit more cautious with dosing of antibiotics and steroids and things in children. To me, I think the biggest thing is, and it's been a long time since I've done any adult medicine, but I think the biggest thing is compliance and just getting a child to follow instructions really is the biggest yeah. thing. Actually getting the management across the line is very different in children. You know, some of the things we suggest like wet dressings, bleach baths, moisturizing five times a day, things like that is, it's much harder to do that in a child than in an adult. And what we were talking about before with children just slobbering all over the place and 
you know, touching their siblings and spreading infections and germs mm. everywhere, it's a lot harder to manage those things with children as well. So it's yeah. more of a behavioural side, I think, that, that makes the management very different in children than in adults. Do you have any tips for that for adults? for parents? I think one thing is to try and get the children involved in it. So we don't want it to be like a punishment for them. And even from a young age, sort of getting them involved and letting them feel like it's a fun thing and they have a bit of ownership over it, I think can be really helpful. Things like star charts can be really helpful for kids who are a bit difficult to get across the line, you know, five days of getting the steroid creams on and they get a, you know half an hour extra of TV time. <laughs> some, some sort of reward system can be helpful for some families. And also just sort of building it into the routine. So building it into the bath routine or we brush our teeth and then we put our creams on and sort of making it like business as usual as opposed to being a real chore. Mm. And I understand this is difficult, particularly in families where there's lots of kids and trying to manage moisturising three times a day while you've got three other kids running around is really difficult. But just trying your best to, to work that into routines and to get the kids as involved as possible is a good first step. But... I acknowledge that it's really hard. Mm, No, I think that's really good advice. So what do we need to look after our child's skin? And I'm talking just general children's skin because I've got lots of friends that have some multiple children or, or newborns and they're like, what do I do to look after my child's skin to ensure that they've got healthy skin later on in life for someone that just has no skin conditions or no concerns, I guess. I think personally, I think that just general eczema management is really useful for everyone, whether you've got eczema or not. And I think that's probably what you're asking. I would say moisturising is probably the key. And the big thing with the moisturising is that you don't want to use the fancy smelling, really super expensive fancy creams. You just want something really simple, hypoallergenic, fragrance-free, something like a a QV. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention brands, but... um, I would stick to something simple like a QV or Cetaphil and moisturize. I'd moisturize twice a day for a child with or without any skin conditions because keeping that moisture barrier in the skin is probably the single most important thing Mm -hmm. for developing that dryness and itch and infection. So keeping up that barrier is the biggest thing to keeping the infection barrier as well. Yeah. And what about with things like shampoo and conditioner and soap? Should they be using something different to what we are using? I actually would use the same thing as well. So everything just hypoallergenic. So anything that smells fancy is going to have things in it that are irritating. Mm. Um, So I would personally, in my household, we don't have anything other than QV. And that's for parents and adults and children alike, just because I don't want anything sort of irritating on my skin. And that goes for moisturizers, bath oils, you know, shampoo and condition, obviously, here or there but with the children I do really simple bath washes and bath oils and and moisturizers. I've got a couple of questions that have come in from mothers with different concerns for their kids. One that's recurring is for a young child that has had some kind of injury you know that they're starting on the bike for the first time or on their scooter and they've fallen off and they've developed some kind of scar they may or may not have had some stitches or some glue but the parent is really concerned with the scarring especially if it's on a child's face what are some things that they can do in order to make sure that scar heals as optimally as possible 
Yeah, I guess, to be honest, a lot of that will come from the initial management of the wound. So how the wound is managed, whether it's stitched or glued, how it's dressed. So just being really vigilant when the child is being managed initially, making sure that there's some good dressings on, making sure that they're following the advice for dressing care as well. So keeping the area nice and dry. If it becomes oozy or smelling or swollen, just to have it looked at straight away because infected wounds can scar a lot more than regular wounds. Mm -hmm. I guess the other advice is just to be aware that different children and different skin types will scar differently. So particularly with the more Asian or darker skin, you can see that keloid scarring, which is that really thick overgrowth of scar. And that's unfortunately fairly common. And seeing a dermatologist or a pediatrician early for that, because sometimes they can suggest various creams and steroids and things that can help with that. Apart from that, I think the main thing is just being really vigilant in that initial phase of healing and just really keeping an eye on it and seeking help early if they're worried about infection in the actual wound itself. Yeah, good idea. And another question in regards to infantile acne. So for some babies, I know it's not very common, but for some babies that will develop open comedones, should a parent do something about that? Should they seek to have them extracted or use certain products or just leave the skin alone? Yeah, look, babies get really funny rashes when they're little, particularly less than one month or two month old buds get anything from red spotty rashes to little pimples to the infantile acne. Erythema toxicum is a rash that sounds awful, but is very benign. So really, really common to get all sorts of rashes in newborns. Pretty much all of them you'd leave. There's very few, unless we're really concerned about a nasty evolving eczema dermatitis or an infection, we would leave them. So even with the infantile acne, we'd often leave it. Make sure you're just being really careful again with hypoallergenic bath oils and moisturizers, and it will generally clear itself. It's usually just due to the hormonal shift from being born and having mum's hormones on board and everything shifting around and pretty much always will self-resolve. But again, like I said, if if parents are ever worried about anything, they should always get it checked. Or if there's any additional features, so redness, if it's swollen, if a child has a fever, or if there's anything else they're worried about, they should also get it checked. Great advice. Now, in regards to some of those more chronic conditions that we see in children, talk to us a little bit more about them in terms of what can happen if they're not managed well. What are some of the risks that can occur? Yeah, look, I think... The big one to talk about is eczema because it's so common and it's surprisingly easy to manage if you get on top of it quickly and it can have complications. So when you're asking about what can happen if it's not managed with eczema, the most common thing is that the skin can become infected. So untreated eczema is just, you're just waiting for it to become infected and it's either with a staph, a bacterial infection or with a viral and it's usually a herpes virus and both of them can be really painful and difficult to manage once the horse has bolted. Um, Long-term complications of something like eczema that's not treated properly is that the actual skin can change. So you can get thickness of the skin, the skin can scar. Some children, the skin goes quite light. Others, it gets very dark and you see really leathery patches of skin behind the knees and in the elbows, in the elbow creases. And the follow-on impact of that is poor self-esteem, poor self-confidence. And we do see a lot of bullying at school, unfortunately, because of poorly treated skin conditions. So, you know, I'm talking long-term, but you can get considerable um, complications and ongoing impacts of not treating eczema properly. 
So in terms of, do you want me to go into actual eczema itself as well? Yeah, I think so. I think eczema is a really big one. So that would be good to go into a little bit more detail. Yeah, so they're the main complications of eczema. Really what eczema is, is it's it's an inherited skin condition and it usually runs in the same family as asthma, eczema, allergies and hay fever. They're all sort of in the same sort of general family of conditions. And so if a parent has really bad hay fever, it's not uncommon to see a child with eczema, for example. And it's inherently dry skin and there's lack of natural oils in the skin and lack of that moisture barrier that seals the skin from the outside world. And that leads to itchiness of the skin and really red, flaky, angry skin. And as soon as that skin breaks, there's risk of infection. Um, And so the main triggers for eczema, heat, so overheating. So things like, you know, we see really bad eczema in winter because parents are putting layers and layers and layers of clothes on their kids because it's cold. And that overheating from the layers of clothes can cause um, eczema. Things like really thick dunas, woolen prickly clothes as well can make eczema worse. Really hot temperature rooms, hot baths. So anything that causes overheating and excess drying of the skin can trigger the eczema. And things like food allergies and house dust mites can also trigger eczema. They don't cause eczema, like I said before, but they can make eczema a bit worse. And any skin infection as well can make eczema worse as well. Mm. So that's their own triggers. In terms of how to manage eczema, the absolute key is moisturize. Moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. And that just helps form that barrier between the inside and the outside and to just keep that skin layer really well controlled. Um, So with the moisturizers, I'd say for a child who has normal, otherwise normal skin, I'd say a minimum of at least once a day, I'd make sure we're moisturizing the skin, possibly twice if you can get it in. With the moisturizing, a few things that are important. One, I'd always moisturize after a bath or a shower. So patting down the skin. If you can, leave leave a little bit of water on the skin and then moisturize within three minutes because then you can lock in that moisture on the skin as well. So if you can get that into the bath time routine, that's really helpful. With the moisturizer, really important, particularly with kids with eczema, to always use a pump pack. Or if you've got the tub, to use a fresh spoon every time or a fresh spatula or even like a a paddle pop stick or something, just so that you're not putting your hands back in there. Because what happens is children with eczema generally have overgrowth of bacteria on their skin as well. If you're lathering on the cream, your hand's covered in the bacteria from the skin and then you're popping your hand back in the tub, you're just going to keep reinfecting the skin. So switching across to a pump pack can be really helpful. Or if you've already gone out and bought a big tub of cream, just use a fresh paddle pop stick every time. And creams over lotions as well is another good tip as well. So the cream is generally a bit thicker than a skin lotion. And that thick layer of moisturizing can be really helpful. Um, The other thing that along the same line of moisturizing is things like a barrier cream. So Dermis, for example, is a really good option. It's that thick sort of gel looking cream it doesn't actually provide much moisture to the skin so I'd always moisturize first but putting a layer of that on top for kids who say toddlers who are really drooly and dribble a lot and they get the eczema or dermatitis on the neck from the drool putting a layer of the dermis on top is a really good way to stop the saliva irritating the skin and kids who chlorine for example makes their eczema a bit worse just popping on a layer of dermis before they go into the pool is a really good way of just giving the skin a bit of a barrier Um, so thinking about barrier moisturizers as well can be really helpful or barrier creams rather 
So that's probably the most basic treatment and management for eczema. Then you want to avoid triggers. So things like that overheating I was talking about before. So you want to make sure that baths aren't too warm, warm enough to keep the child comfortable, but not too warm that they're red and hot and itchy. Be careful with layering clothes as well. So you know, obviously we want the child to be comfortable, but we, we don't need them to be in layers and layers of clothes and avoiding things like prickly walls or really thick fleecy materials. 100% cotton is generally the, the most comfortable on the skin in terms of irritating the skin. Avoiding fragranced lotions and creams and bath oils and things like that as well is really helpful. So you want to try and avoid triggers. If you know of food triggers, like I said, manage the eczema, make sure you're really on top of the eczema and then keep up the foods. Don't avoid the food unless the eczema is really bad and you're seeing a very direct link. So as soon as they have egg, the eczema flares up. Hold off on the egg for a bit until you get on top of the eczema and then definitely reintroduce the egg again. I wouldn't recommend stopping the foods unless there's another type of allergy going on. What about things like washing detergent? Same sort of thing. If you're noticing that, say, in teenagers who are getting to help wash up, if they're getting a lot of irritation on the hands, that could be washing detergent related. So you could try various different ones. You know, some kids you might see with only on their face and that might be from makeup. So just trying to see if you can find a pattern. Some families will see that wherever the clothes have touched, they get a bit of an itchy rash. So maybe it's the washing powder. So some of that's a bit of trial and error as well. But again, as fragrance-free and as additive-free as possible is generally the most helpful. But that doesn't necessarily mean the most expensive ones are the best because some of the expensive brands, we don't know. if Sometimes just a simple, cheap one that's got not much added into it is, is all you need. Yeah, good advice. And you mentioned about fragrances and things that can be quite irritating. What about more natural fragrances like essential oils? Yeah, look, in terms of, you mean rubbing into the skin? Well, just they might be using, say, a natural moisturiser, but it has some kind of natural essential yeah. oil like lavender. Yeah, look, I think that's a bit here nor there in terms of it hasn't really been studied as much. I would generally, I personally stay away from them as well, just because we don't know what sort of testing they're doing on that and how it's going to impact your child. But again, I think trial and error is generally the best thing. I would just avoid parents going and forking out lots and lots of money for things that, that sound a bit fancy, but we're not really sure if they work or not. So with the eczema, apart from the so moisturizing and avoiding triggers are probably the, the easiest and most common helpful things that we can do. For eczema that is quite severe and not responding to that. There are some other things that are really, really helpful. So things like wet dressings where we keep the skin constantly moist with literally dressings that are wet. And this might be something as simple as having a wet t-shirt or a wet bandage and wrapping it around the, the troublesome areas. That can be really, really helpful. So that's something that's worth talking to um, the GP about or jumping online and seeing how that's done. And I'll give you a few resources. The other thing that we do that sounds a bit bizarre, if you haven't heard about it before, but is bleach baths. And that is really helpful for eczema management. What that actually does is it, it helps to eradicate some of that bacteria overgrowth on the skin. And that's for kids who get the really consistently infected eczemas. So it's literally some household bleach in the bath. And that can be really helpful. And again, there's if you jump onto the eczema 
.org.au website, they have all of the um, formulas for that. So bleach baths and wet dressings are really helpful for eczema. Then the other thing is steroid creams, which um, a lot of parents have heard about. Steroid creams are really helpful to just sort of dampen down that body's reaction to the eczema and the inflamed skin. Important to use it carefully. So we want to manage it well, but we don't want to manage with steroid creams long-term because there are some side effects. It can make the skin a bit thin and fragile if we're using it long-term, but definitely in the short term, steroid creams can be really, really helpful for eczema. So seeking out some more advice from either your GP or even going online to the eczema.org.au website or local hospital guidelines can be really helpful to manage some of that at home. And if, like I said before, if the home managements aren't working, then seeking some help from a pediatrician or a dermatologist would be the next step. Mm. Only the, the last thing I will say with eczema though, again, is really common, but if the eczema, particularly if it's a really young child, so less than three months, if it's really severe, hard to, well, less than a year actually, if it's really severe and hard to manage, or if there's any weight loss associated with it, I'd make sure you definitely see someone because very rarely it can be linked to immune deficiencies, severe eczema and weight loss. So that's one thing that I've learned in both my dermatology and allergy clinics is just to be aware of the child who's losing weight and has severe eczema. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Now, you mentioned earlier that children can be prone to bullying when they you know, look different to the other kids. What are some things that parents can do to support their children that may be experiencing either a visible skin difference because of a chronic long-term skin condition or some other kind of difference on their skin? Yeah, I think this is the thing that I actually found most surprising and sad when I started doing all these clinics was to see the impact on young children by having these skin conditions. Kids can be so nasty and skin conditions can be really visible. So it does lead to quite a lot of bullying. I think the key for parents is to just be aware that this can be a problem. So parents often don't realise the impact that it can have on the children. So things like if they notice a pattern of school refusal, you know, there's a tummy ache every morning and not wanting to go to school, or if the mood is quite low, I think it's really important to just be in tune with that and to have the conversation early, particularly if their child has a very visible skin condition. We see kids who have alopecia, who don't have much hair or who have discoloration of the skin and they get teased a lot at school and the parents may not be aware that it's a problem. So I think it's being aware of it, speaking to the child about it and having an open conversation and just asking them directly how things are going at school and advocating for them through school. And to always just seek extra support. Don't leave it for too long because especially in children who already have some low self-esteem and bullying issues, leaving things for too long can just fester and manifest in other ways. So I'd jump on top of it early as soon as they realise there's a problem, whether it's either seeking supports through school, speaking to the GP to see what the local supports are as well. And some of these conditions, particularly the more nasty genetic conditions, they have support groups and you know Facebook groups and things like that, that parents can get involved with and they can share information on how to manage it. And I guess the other thing is to manage the skin condition as best as possible. So, you know, it's really important for the parents to try and help stay on top of the skin condition management so that it can be as well managed as possible. So the child can have as good a time as possible at school. But I think the biggest thing is awareness. Yeah, so important. And also kids don't necessarily have the skill set to articulate what's going on. So they might be acting out in other ways because that's their way to express what they're going through. 
Exactly, exactly. And we see a lot of kids who have, you know, medical conditions, but they're often triggered by stress or underlying anxiety. So I think it's just, you know, if it doesn't quite make sense, just think twice about whether there's something else going on that the child's not able to articulate. Yes. And in regards to medicine, you know, pediatric medicine and, and what's actually happening in the space, are there any changes or things that are being done differently now to manage children's skin health? Uh, look, I think as more and more research evolves, we know what works, what doesn't work. So, for example, the allergy and the food food allergy and eczema links has, has all sort of come out through extensive research. So I think that's been really helpful. There is a lot of work going into investigation and treatment of the more rare skin conditions as well. So, you know, we've been test sending skin biopsies to America, for example, for, for genetic testing and things like that. So I think particularly with the genetic side of skin conditions, there's a lot happening in that space. And as medications evolve and become better as well, there will be more options going forward for the really weird and wonderful and novel skin conditions. I think things like eczema and the basic skin conditions, we're pretty much all over now. And, you know, I, I don't know that that will change that much in the future, but definitely the more novel things are becoming much better picked up, managed, investigated as time goes on. And I think we're seeing that just from some of the other guests we've had on here about skin conditions that can occur in anyone. And if they're really, really rare, it hasn't been until recent times with technology where this new research and information can be shared in the cloud in an instant with colleagues on the other side of the world, yeah. which just enhances everyone's research ability and makes breakthroughs, I guess, a lot quicker and seamless. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, thing, the reason why things like eczema are so well researched is because there are so many children affected. But it's, it's exactly like you said, those rare conditions are the ones that there's just not enough at the moment to know about it. But the more that we're sharing this information and the more we're aware of it, the more research that will come out. Now, for parents at home, do you have any advice that can be quite general for those that what should they do when looking after their child's skin? Uh, yep. So I'll say it again. Moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. Yes, yes, yes. So that would be my single most important take-home message. Twice a day, use a cream, pump pack where possible, fragrance-free. That's my sort of mantra. I'd avoid triggers where possible as well, especially for kids with eczema, but also just generally overheating particularly and the really woolly prickly clothes that can just irritate the skin. The other thing that parents often don't think about is scratching. So in terms of infection and trying to reduce infection risk, I'd say one of the most common reasons is, you know, one, that the skin is dry and there are triggers, but also that scratching from the nails, you know, the kids who sit there and scratch and scratch and scratch their dry skin, they're the ones that introduce the infection because there's bacteria sitting in your skin, in your nails. As soon as there's a break in the skin, that's when you get the bacteria come through. So keeping nails short, popping mittens on if they're little and you can't stop the scratching and just managing the dry skin with the moisturizing and the wet dressings and stuff as well to stop that infection risk and the break in the skin. They're mm. probably my biggest take-home messages. Fantastic. And where can people find more about you and the work that you do? I've got a website, drnelu.com, so D-R-N-E-L-U.com. Um, or I'm on Facebook and Instagram and you know anyone can contact me at any time and I try my best to give some general advice. Yeah, that's probably the best way to find out a bit more about me. 
Fantastic. And you mentioned that there were some resources we'll also put in the show notes as well in regards to eczema uh, support and things like that. But thank you so much for coming on the show. This is the first episode that we've actually spoken about child's skin conditions. And I think it's a huge topic and it is a recurring theme where parents are asking, what can I do about this? So I think we've definitely answered some of those questions today. So I appreciate your time. Oh, great. Thank you. No, it's a real pleasure. And thank you for having me on. What a fabulous podcast recording. I have so many parents ask me about different things for children's skin all the time. I think parents can be hyper aware of what's happening on their children's skin and because they are more fragile and more sensitive to certain things, I can understand why it can be such a big concern for parents. So I really hope that that answered some of those questions that you may have been facing yourself. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were number one, moisturizer, moisturizer, moisturizer. Dr. Nalu shared that a simple fragrance-free benign moisturizer should be used daily, if not twice a day, even on healthy skin, because it helps to protect a barrier and keep the hydration in. And we know a hydrated skin heals better and is less susceptible to then become a source of infection. Because remember that our skin is the number one uh, line of defense for our immune system. So if our skin is impaired anyway, uh, and especially for a child's skin, because they are more sensitive, their immune systems aren't necessarily as robust, um, making sure that that skin barrier keeps intact is so, so important. Number two, while parents can be hypersensitive about their child's skin, many rushes and anomalies that we see are self-limiting, so they resolve themselves. But if the conditions are con combined with heat, fever, weight loss, appetite reduction or pain, then definitely seek further opinion. And number three, as children either don't communicate because they might not be talking yet or maybe they're unsure how to articulate what they are experiencing, look for behavior in children. So if you notice that there's some changes such as frequently not wanting to go to school or daycare, loss of appetite, acting out or being more emotional or more um, reserved than usual, it may be due to something deeper going on. So consider those little clues. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. If you enjoyed listening, take a screenshot while you are still listening to this. Tag us on your socials um, at dermhealth.co. Until next week, be skin powered.